0: Hey hey, this is Ellie, and welcome to Minute Mysteries, you're in the right place. So, you might have noticed the new theme music, and the new uh, art, and all that. That's because this is the beginning of a new series. So the deal with these episodes is that I just have this book of Minute Mysteries, and I read from them, and I try and solve them. And I don't usually succeed, but it's a fun thing to try. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not very good at these, but they're a lot of fun, so yeah, anyway. With no more waffle, I guess let's, uh, let's dig right in. A Hot Pursuit Hello, Smith, said Professor Fordney as he opened the door. What's up? Uncle Fred's house has been robbed. He had some negotiable bonds in the library safe and told me to stick close to home until he returned from New York. Were they stolen? interrogated Fordney. I'm afraid so. I was up in my bedroom about 20 minutes ago and I heard a noise. I rushed downstairs just in time to see a man dash out of the library. I ran after him, and as I passed the door, I noticed the safe was open, so I suppose he got the bonds. He jumped into a waiting automobile, and I trailed him in my car, which, fortunately, was standing in front of the house, but he got away from me. Did you get his license number? Uh, no, I couldn't see it. When I lost him in the traffic, I drove right over here. Didn't you keep the house locked while you were upstairs? Uh, yes, but the burglar chiseled open his cellar window. Well. ''Let's go over and have a look,'' suggested Fordney. When they reached the Smith home, they found the bonds gone. ''Did you lock the front door when you ran out of the house?'' ''Why, uh,'' replied Smith nervously, ''the door locks automatically. I don't know what Uncle Fred will say when he gets back.'' ''He'll say plenty if you tell him the story you told me,'' interrupted the professor. ''I suggest you put the bonds back.'' Where did Smith make his incriminating slip?'' Ah, okay. So, Smith has the story of a robber coming in and stealing bonds out of his house. And Professor Fordney is like, you're lying. Give the bonds back. So, he stole the bonds. Now, we just need to figure out how he did so. So, the last thing that Fordney says to Smith is, um, is about locking the doors. So, maybe that's what it's about, or it might be something completely different. So, I don't notice anything. I've, like, kind of reread through it and, like yeah. <laughs> the only strange thing is about the door locks, which Fordy mentions at the very end. How Smith is like, oh, the door locks automatically, you know? Unless it's like something really random about like how a house is generally set up. Like where the library is and where like the basement is and stuff like that. Because supposedly the robber came from the cellar, because that's where he chiseled open a window, up into the library and then out the door. Wouldn't he have heard and So, okay. So... Smith says that 20 minutes ago he heard a noise and he rushed downstairs to see a man dash out of the library. Would he have heard the sound when he chiseled open the window? Like would that be too loud to not notice? Maybe he was supposed to have heard a sound when the window was chiseled open. Maybe that like just makes a really loud sound or something that he somehow missed. Although that is also like two floors down because his bedroom is upstairs and the cellar window is obviously in the cellar so I guess it makes sense that he wouldn't hear it earlier. Hmm. Wait, so so he said that the burglar jumped into a waiting automobile and Smith's car was also standing in front of the house. So... (laughs) Because, I mean, you could always fit two cars in front of a house. I mean, it's not a tiny house, so it has several floors, so I'm assuming that it has pretty good curb real estate out front, so I'm sure that two cars could fit there, but that's just something that I noticed. I don't know. I'm stumped with this one. I think we're going to have to look at the solution. (laughs) Alright, here is the solution. Smith said he ran after the burglar. Had he done so, he could not have known the cellar window had been chiseled open. Therefore, his story was obviously faked. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. I'd kind of assumed that he had, you know, just gone back down and figured it out that he had opened it, but they never mentioned that he does that, I suppose. Wow. <laughs> that is a detail that I somehow just glossed over. <laughs> Alright, let's scooch on to the second one. A Question of Identity Professor Fortney and three of his friends were enjoying their weekly get-together at the university club. Professor, said Patry, tell us something about that Yelpier murder case you were working on. Well, gentlemen, he replied in his retiring manner. As you know, Yelpier's affairs were common knowledge, and the fact that several women had reasons to wish him dead complicated matters a bit. His body was found in his study, which opened onto a corridor. At the other end of the corridor and directly opposite it, a staircase led to the servants' quarters above. Diana Lane, a houseguest of Mrs. Yelpier at the time of the murder, was questioned and she appeared nervous. She insisted, however, that she had been in her room at the time Yelpier was slain. Nora, a servant, testified that... She was descending the stairs leading from the servants' quarters at midnight. She saw Diana Lane, wearing her famous emerald pendant and dressed in an enticing black dress, walk down the lighted corridor to Yelpier's room. She said she followed a minute later and heard Diana and Yelpier violently quarreling. She returned to the servants' quarters and, as she opened the door of her room, she heard a shot. In the face of such evidence, Miss Lane admitted having gone to the study at the time, but protested her innocence, declaring she remained only a minute. While Miss Lane was acquitted, you know, her reputation was not above reproach. Even so, I knew without further investigation that Nora's testimony was maliciously false. Ah, okay, this one's kind of, uh, this is kind of complex. Or at least it seems kind of complex. So, what we have here is a murder. He was found in his study, which opened into a hallway, and at the end of the hallway was the staircase, which led to the servant's quarters. So, it was, you know, within earshot. Diana Lane said that she had been in her room, but Nora, whose story is apparently, quote unquote, maliciously false, said that she was going down the stairs um, from the servant's quarters into the hallway that had the study on it, and, and she, she saw Diana Lane walk down the corridor to Yelpier's room. And then she said that she heard Diana and Yelpier fighting, and then she returned to her servant's quarters, and then later she heard a shot one word is kind of strange to me it's in nora's story she mentions how um, diana lane walked down the lighted corridor to yelp room that seems like an unnecessary detail the corridor was lit up i don't know maybe it's like it shouldn't have been on because it was so late or something like that let's see if we can find anything else about lights in here see if we can connect two facts or something oh wait a second So I think the way that the hallway and the study and the servant's quarters were all kind of set up. So imagine a long rectangle to symbolize the hallway, right? So I think that the study and the servant's quarters kind of make up like a Z shape. If the middle part of the Z was a straight line, you know? (laughs) I can't describe this well, but I think that they were kind of like opposite each other. So... That means that Nora, when she was looking down the stairway, could not have seen Diana Lane walk into the study, because like, the stairway just isn't angled for that. So I think that's what's going on here. Okay, let's look at the solution. I'm hopeful that I got it right. <laughs> here is the solution. As Diana Lane was walking down the corridor with her back to Nora, it was impossible for the servant to know Diana was wearing her famous emerald pendant. Okay, okay. I wasn't right, but I also wasn't completely wrong because I did mention that the angle of the stairway in relation to the study wouldn't have allowed her to see what she did. So, I'm gonna give myself half points on that. <laughs> I got a small part of the solution, so I'm, I'm satisfied. <laughs> All right, on to the third one. A yachtsman's alibi. I've often remarked, said Professor Fordney, in an expansive mood. How very difficult it is to fake an alibi without someone's assistance. A case in point is a messy affair we cleared up recently. I didn't definitely suspect Picus when I happened to bump into him at the Fourth of July parade, the morning after an acquaintance of his had been found dead under suspicious circumstances. I rather casually asked him where he had been and what he had been doing the previous afternoon about four o'clock, the apparent time of the man's death. He related the following story. I took my sailboat out about noon yesterday. It was great on the water. Around uh, 3 o'clock, however, when I was perhaps 10 miles out, the wind died down completely. There wasn't a breath of air, and I knew that, unless I could attract some boat, I was in for an uncomfortable time. Remembering that some international distress flag is a flag flown upside down, I ran mine up to the top of the mast in that manner. Thank God it was a clear day. In about an hour, the steamer Lyon hove to, and I went aboard her after securing my boat with a towline. The captain said he had seen my distress signal about four miles away and would put me ashore at Gladstone Landing. He did so, and, as there was no one about, I hailed a passing motorist who gave me a lift back to town. Imagine my surprise when I read in the paper this morning that the Leone had been sunk in a storm after putting me ashore, and all hands had been lost. While I knew, remarked the professor, that the Leone had been sunk with all on board, after hearing Pikes' story, I immediately arrested him on suspicion of murder. What was wrong with Pica's alibi? So <laughs> I think um, kind of a trademark of a faked alibi is that there's no one you can check it with. There probably wasn't anybody on the dock that could say that he took a sailboat out at noon and then the Leon whom he flagged down and got to pick him up, they all sank so they can't exactly talk to the Leon crew and you know, and check his story and also the the person who gave him a lift back to town was just a passing motorist so he doesn't know who know who it was so there's nobody that can back him up so that is already suspicious oh so so (laughs) i don't know if this is actually accurate because i'm not i don't know how weather works and i don't know how fast storms come on but the leone said that they saw the distress signal four miles out and then later this the leone was sunk in a storm like, I don't know exactly what the uh, the timeline is. I think it might have been, like, the next morning or something. But if it was such a big storm that could sink a ship like that, then wouldn't it have been kind of rolling in before? Again, I don't know. I know storms can come on quickly, so that might not be even... That might not even be a valid point. But, like, still, being able to see something from four miles off the day before and then sinking in a storm the next day is kind of, kind of strange, you know? How easy is it to see a flag that's upside down from four miles out? Like, that's a long way. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they have their, like, pirate telescopes to look through, but, like, <laughs> still. Like, who would normally look that closely at just a normal passing sailboat? Like, honestly. So that is kind of strange that they'd notice it from so far away, when usually a ship like that wouldn't even, you know, take notice of another ship that was so far away. Um, so yeah, that's all I got. I think my, my first possible idea is that, well, there's nobody that he can check it with, so it's kind of suspicious to begin with. Uh, second, the point about the storm, which I don't know how valid that is, but whatever. And then thirdly, the um, the point of like, being able to see it from four miles out. Like, like why would they even look at the ship if it was four miles away and it was such a small sailboat? It probably didn't even matter to them. So, if that's all I got, <laughs> let's check the solution. Here is the solution. As Pycus said, there was no breeze. The distress flag would have hung limp against the mast, and the captain could not have seen at that distance whether or not the flag was upside down. That's all the professor needed to determine the falsity of his alibi. However, Picus was a poor sailor. While the international distress signal is a flag flown upside down, it is by custom and regulation always flown at half-mast. Ah, see, the half-mast part... I mean, I didn't know because I'm not a sailor, but I, I guess I totally forgot about how flags work, and now they kind of need wind to, to fly. So <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel like an idiot. Whew, alright. So today's score, I think I got like maybe half a one right, I don't know. <laughs> I think the second one I did get partially because I got the angle idea, but not the actual solution itself. So anyway, that was fun to read. I didn't do great, but they were interesting and definitely worth the read. So, I hope that you guys uh, figured it out quicker than me. If you if you did, let me know. Email me at classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. Especially if you find any more logic puzzles that I can read on here, because these are a lot of fun, and I want to keep this going for a while. So, yeah. I hope you guys have a wonderful day, and I hope you guys don't die. See you next Thursday. Peace. <laughs>